Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them open to Ephesians chapter 6. That is going to be the text that we are going to be preaching from and hearing God speak to us today. And as I had the opportunity to choose a text, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Um, I like to listen to Al Mohler a lot. Uh, Usually every morning on my drive to work, I listen to him. And one of the things that he talks about often is our society and where we are at as a culture here in America. So many people right now are telling us that we are literally living in a post-Christian America. This is the opportunity, I mean, the opportunity, the window of opportunity for us to share the gospel is beginning to close. Christian privilege here in this country is ending. And it is going to be gone someday. That will happen. Some social commentators are saying that it's going to happen sooner than later, even. One of the things that Al Mohler likes to look at is a website and a research center called the Pew Research Center. So I went on their website and I just thought to myself, you know, I'd like to find out what they have to say about what an evangelical Christian is. So I went there, typed in, what is an evangelical Christian? And a link came up to a study done in 2011 that talked about what is the greatest threat to the church today. They interviewed and, and, uh, and polled many evangelical pastors and did their research from all of these different pastors. And the single greatest threat to Christianity, according to these pastors in 2011, was not Islam. It was not Roman Catholicism. It was not any other religious system or cult. It was not atheism. The single greatest threat to Christianity, according to these evangelical church leaders, was secularism. Secularism. C.S. Lewis wrote a great little book about 50 years ago called The Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. It is where a senior devil, Screwtape, tutors a junior devil, Wormwood, in the art of temptation. At the end of this book, there's a chapter called Screwtape Proposes a Toast, where this Screwtape at the annual dinner of the Tempter's Training College for Young Devils says this, It will be an ill day for us if what most humans mean by religion ever vanishes from the earth. It can still send us the truly delicious sins, but the fine flower of unholiness can grow only in the close neighborhood of the holy. Nowhere do we tempt so successfully as on the very steps of the altar. C.S. Lewis wrote that 50 years ago, looking at secularism in his day encroaching into the church. If you look at Europe today, you look at England today, Scotland, Ireland, Western Europe, evangelical Christianity is almost gone in those cultures, in those societies. It's happening here as well. That encroachment of secularism into the church is happening. The Apostle Paul said this was going to happen. As he was traveling back to Jerusalem for that final time, he stopped in Ephesus. And and Luke records what happens for us in, in Acts chapter 20. He stops and meets with the Ephesians elders. And in Acts 20, starting in verse 24, he says, I do not consider my life of any account. This is Paul talking. I do not consider myself, I don't, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish the course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Jumping down to verse 27, he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. 
Paul was predicting that within one generation of his departure, that he knew that the church was going to be in serious danger of secularism. The world was going to encroach on the church, and there were going to be men from within the church that began to teach strange doctrines. He even wrote an entire letter to a church where he had nothing positive to say to them. He had nothing encouraging to say to them. Even his greeting is probably the shortest greeting of any of his letters. And that's the church of Galatia. If you read that letter, it is an indictment on that church that they have left the gospel for another gospel of a different kind. And he says, if anyone preaches another gospel of a different kind, let him be accursed. And yet that's what Paul was saying. Peter says it too. First Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Here's Peter writing about 30 years after Jesus was crucified, buried, rose again, and ascended to the Father. He's writing to say, this is going to happen. These men are going to come in, and they are going to introduce these destructive heresies. Not long after Peter wrote, our Lord's brother, Jude, wrote. And he said this, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. We just celebrated this incredible Passion Week last week. We had the privilege of of celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as proof positive of our salvation, of our resurrection as well. And yet there are people today in the church that are denying the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus of Jesus Christ as a doctrine that needs to be adhered to in order to be a Christian. You do not. In other words, you do not need to believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus in order to be saved. That flies in the face of everything scripture tells us. They're here. They are here. We are in a spiritual battle for the health of the church against wickedness from within the church. How do we fight this battle? How do we fight it today, especially in our pluralistic, post-Christian culture? Well, this morning, I would like to show you how to use three resources at our disposal for spiritual warfare in order to stand firm and resist the devil. Three resources at our disposal for spiritual warfare in order to stand firm and resist the devil. Let's read Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20 together. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Father, we ask that your word would go forth boldly this morning, that you would open up the eyes of our heart, that we might see you in this text and live for you 
putting on the armor that you have provided us. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Three points in this passage. Three points. Number one, strength to stand firm. Number two, armor to stand firm. And number three, prayer to stand firm. Strength to stand firm, armor to stand firm, and prayer to stand firm. And now I know some of you are looking at this text, looking at my three points, and wondering, there's no way. There's just no way. And you're right. We're only going to cover the first point this morning because I get to preach next week also. So we are going to look at this passage before us and we're going to pause and figure out what Paul is telling us about giving us the strength that we need to stand firm this morning. So Paul starts out this section by saying the word finally. We need to take a pause right there and understand why would Paul start this section with that word? What is it about this section that is so important that he would use a term of finality for everything that follows? And it's because this section of Scripture, of this book, is the summary passage for the entire book of Ephesians. The book began with prayer in chapters 1 through 3, with the emphasis being our unity in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, is used 35 times in this book alone. And Paul's emphasis is our identity as believers, as Christians, as little Christs. We are in Christ. When we look at these first three chapters, we can see that Paul's emphasis um, in several key areas focuses on Christ. He looks at God's plan of salvation in Christ in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Then he starts this incredible prayer in verse 15, going all the way through the end of chapter 3. This powerful prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving with power, verses 15 to 22 of chapter 1. He prays that we would be made alive in Christ through God's power, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. That we are united with Gentiles in Christ through God's power, in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And then he's proclaiming the mystery in Christ through God's power of what the gospel is in chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. And then lastly, to end out that first section of the book, Paul's request for power to be filled unto the fullness of God in 3, 14 to 21. There is incredible power in the gospel. And Paul wants the Ephesian church to know this. He labored among them for two, two and a half years. This was his church that he just poured over. It broke his heart when he left them that last time traveling to Jerusalem because he knew what was going to happen to this church. He put his number one disciple, Timothy, in that church as their pastor. He had to encourage Timothy over and over again, be strong. Do not let anybody look down on your youthfulness. Do the work of an evangelist. Preach the word. Read the word publicly. Appoint elders. Set up deacons. There are going to be times when people are going to want to have their ears scratched. You be faithful, Timothy. We have those letters that Paul wrote. Throughout chapters 1 through 3, one of the key ingredients is our position in Christ, in that we are seated in the heavenly places, in Christ. We are sitting. Christ was raised from the dead by God's power. He was seated at the right hand of God the Father, in the heavenly places, in God's power. And so also, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, we were made alive together with Christ and were raised up with him to be seated with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus by God's power. Do we identify with that? Do we identify ourselves in that way? Do we see ourselves in Christ in that way, seated in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, by the power of God? The reality is this. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ, and we are invited at the very outset of this letter to sit and enjoy what God has done for us. 
Not to set out and try to attain it for ourselves, because we can't. There's just no way. It is his power at work within us that does everything. We began our Christian life by depending not upon our own doing, but upon what he had done for us. One theologian put it this way. The Christian life from start to finish is based upon this principle of utter dependence on the Lord Jesus. There is no limit to the grace God is willing to bestow upon us. He will give us everything, but we can receive none of it except as we rest in him. Sitting is an attitude of rest. Something has been finished. Work stops and we sit. It is paradoxical but true that we only advance in the Christian life as we learn, first of all, to sit down. And our sitting is in Christ. You've heard of people saying, you know, you need to make a priority list and you need to make a priority of what you want to do first and second and third and fourth. Well, guess what? The priority for the Christian is Christ. And it's not that Christ is at the top of the list. Christ is the list. Everything you do is in Christ, whether it's working or eating or sleeping or worshiping. It is in Christ. Well, chapter four is where Paul begins the practical teaching on how the Christian then is to live out this position in Christ. The word that is repeated over and over again in this section from four, one to six, nine is walk. So we're seated, we're sitting, then we're walking. And he repeats himself in 4.1, 4.17, 5.2, and 5.15. Over and over and over, Paul is talking about our walk. And we even heard a passage read this morning by Ben talking about our walk. This is all about the practice of the Christian. Looking at unity in the church from 4.1 to 16. Holiness in life from 417 to 521. And then the responsibilities at home and at work from 522 to 69. Sitting describes our position in Christ in the heavenly places. Walking is the practical outworking of that heavenly position here on earth. As a heavenly people, we are required to bear the stamp of that heavenliness upon us. Especially in our earthly conduct. Nothing has done greater damage to our Christian testimony than our trying to do right and then demanding right of others based on what we think is right. Isn't that what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day? Isn't that what the Judaizers tried to do with Paul on all the churches that he planted? We become so preoccupied with what is and what is not right in our own eyes that we try to vindicate ourselves and our actions. And that's not our standard. Our standard is Christ. We preach Christ. We worship Christ. That's it. The Holy Spirit has been sent to produce what is of Christ in us. Not what is of somebody else. We are not to produce anything that is apart from or outside of him as we are strengthened with power through his spirit in the inward man. To know the love of Christ. And that is where we walk. In Christ. We are seated in Christ. We walk in Christ. And finally, Paul gets to this section. We come to the pinnacle Summary section of this book of Ephesians. The Christian life begins with sitting, it leads to walking, and it ends with standing. We must know how to sit with Christ in the heavenly places and how to walk worthy of him here on earth, but we must also know how to stand firm before the foe. We need to stand. The Chinese theologian Watchman Nee says this, No Christian can hope to enter the warfare of the ages without learning first to rest in Christ and in what he has done. 
and then through the strength of the Holy Spirit within to follow him in a practical, holy life here on earth. If he is deficient in either of these, he will find that all the talk about spiritual warfare remains just that, only talk. He will never know its reality. I think we have a fear of spiritual warfare. I think we have a a fear of what maybe some of our charismatic friends and brothers in Christ have done with the Holy Spirit and with spiritual warfare, that we don't want to engage it in that way because we feel like, "Ah, I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to do it. But it's a reality, and we have to address it. Let's look then here at this first of these three resources that Paul talks about for spiritual warfare, strength. The command here in verse 10 is be strong. It's clearly stated right there. Finally, be strong. This opening command strikes a strong, almost warlike note that reminds the reader of chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, where Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what are the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right place in in the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is talking about power. He's talking about might. He's talking about strength. As Christians, we don't have to be weaklings. We don't have to be weak. We have God's power. We are joined to the Lord, who is our inexhaustible source of power, who is himself filled with strength and might, the strongest one who conquered a strong one. Don't get me wrong. The devil is strong. His demon armies are strong. They are not to be messed with and trifled with. But our God reigns. Christ has conquered our foe. As Martin Luther wrote, one single word shall fail. One word. It's probably here in this text a piling up of these words for strength. He wants us to be strengthened. That's probably a better translation than be strong. Be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It is something that is done to you, and yet at the same time, there is a human responsibility to obey involved with the divine sovereignty in strengthening. The idea here behind that command is to literally clothe yourself with strength, like you would get dressed in the morning. Put on the clothes of power, of strength, of might in Christ. All the resources the Christian soldier needs are drawn from Christ and his mighty power. Ultimately, we know the source of that power. This is the power of the cross. This is the power of the gospel that Paul preached. One of his first letters to the Thessalonian church He wrote this, We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, And with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. When Paul wrote his treatise on the gospel, the letter to Rome, the church in Rome, he writes this about the gospel. 
I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. To the Greek first, for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. We have a God who is the ultimate source of power. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Have you ever tried to look at the sun without sunglasses on? I don't recommend it. But have you ever tried? It's incredible. You can't look at the sun. It'll burn your eyes. It'll burn your retinas. You cannot look at it. That is how much power is in that sun. Have you ever tried to look at a candle lit on a bright day outside? No big deal, right? No big deal. Looking at that candle, it's like, it's not providing anything for me. It's not providing any light. God is like the sun. The sun is like the candle to us. God's power, his glory, outshines the sun to make even our sun like nothing. The power of God is the gospel. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, God is power, and in him there is no darkness at all. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that created us. This is the God that made us in his image. And yet, our forebear, our federal head, if you will, Adam, messed it up. And when Adam took a bite from that fruit, he plunged all of us into sin. And he separated us from that power, from God. John writes in his letter, his first letter, he says, If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That is the reality of mankind. We say we want fellowship with God, but ultimately we really don't. We lie and do not practice the truth. He also says, If we say that we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We know that Paul has written in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are separated from God. We are under God's wrath in sin, and God knows that. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Mankind is in deep trouble. Fallen man is under the wrath of God. Unregenerate man is under the wrath of God, and they are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And they need a Savior. We need a Savior. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We celebrated his death, burial, and resurrection last week. We celebrated the reality of our salvation in Christ through that event, that Passion Week, where God made man in his image. Man separated himself from God. God came down as a man to restore that relationship, to die on that cross. And it pleased God the Father, to do that. It pleased him. I don't know about you, but that gives me goosebumps. Because God loved us so much that he was willing to put his son on that cross for us. And that is the reality that we have as our Savior. And knowing that, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That is the reality that we have in the gospel. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and all unrighteousness. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Past, present, even... Sorry. Past, present, and future. They are cleansed. They're gone. They are forgiven. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, which... He knows we're going to do. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. This is the reality that we have. We have a God who sent his son to remove our sins. To remove his own wrath from us to restore a right relationship with us, to clothe us in righteousness. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, he made him, God made Jesus, the one who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. That great exchange, my sin for Christ's righteousness. As Jonathan Edwards famously said, the only thing I contributed to my salvation is the sin that made it necessary. My sin for Christ's righteousness. And that is the power that we have. That is the strength that we have. That is how we are to be strengthened. Preach the gospel to yourself. If you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in this way, beloved, you need to. You need to know him. John writes, 1 John 3.16, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That is what love looks like. That is what a redeemed person looks like, a regenerated person. And he describes that regenerated person later on in this letter in John 4, 1 John 4.7 and following. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I just want to read one or two verses. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That is how we are to live among each other in fellowship with one another. Beloved, love one another. Paul gives us in Ephesians two ways to be strong. Two ways to be strong or to be strengthened in the strength of his might. The first one is found in verse 11 there. He says, put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. Put on. Again, reminiscent back of Ephesians 4.24 where he says, put on the new self. You are a new creature in Christ. If you have been saved by grace through faith, you are a new creature in Christ. And you can put on the full armor. This is a preparing. This is a a making sure that you have all the pieces that you need and that they all fit before leaving for battle. Before leaving the base, you make sure you put on your armor and you put on the new self. You put on Christ. And it's not just... Armor, it is the full armor. Paul is telling us that it is imperative to use the full armor, not just bits and pieces, not just the pieces that you like to use or that you think might be necessary, but the whole panoply, the full array of armor that he has supplied from head to toe, every piece. It's an all or none proposition. You don't get to pick and choose. The full armor of God. This armor is supplied by God, designed by him to withstand anything that Satan can throw at you. That's why this armor is so important. That's why this armor is so good. And that's why Paul implores us to take on the full armor, not just bits and pieces. Why? Why the full armor? What is the purpose of this? So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. There's our word. Sit, walk, stand. This is where Paul wants us to be. 
We are seated in Christ. We are walking according to Christ's righteousness in the Christian life. And we come to a point now where we must stand or stand firm. This is a this single Greek word in the Greek text is the key to unlocking this section of Scripture. The word in the Greek is histemi. And depending on how it is formed, it carries a lot of different semantic meanings. It's used four times in three different forms in this passage. Four times, three forms. And each time it's used, Paul is trying to convey a little nuance, a little something different in this word. He wants to understand that our standing takes different forms at different times for different purposes. Here, in this first use, Paul is probably saying to us, stand ready. Stand ready. So where our text, our English text says, be strong, which is a very good literal translation of the Greek, the intent here is stand ready. What do we need to be ready for? He tells us. The schemes of the devil. Satan is the sworn enemy of the Christian church. He is the sworn enemy of Christ. He is the sworn enemy of every Christian. And he is real. He is not a comic book character in a red suit with a pointy tail and horns with a pitchfork. That is not Satan. But that's what he wants you to think he is. He wants you to think in that because then you won't take him seriously. Again, C.S. Lewis. Screw tape letters, he says this to Wormwood. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest him something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Satan advances covertly. He makes his approaches in the darkness. He employs cunning rather than power. He seeks to delude and betray rather than vanquish by mere force, which he could try to do. He is the angel of light. He is the foremost of God's creatures that he created. He was the most beautiful angel, we are told, in Ezekiel and Isaiah. And he rebelled. What are some of the schemes that he might use? How about this? Lies. Jesus tells us that he is the father of lies. That he's been a liar from the beginning. Go back to Genesis 3. In the garden. At the tree. Did God really say not to eat that? Did did God really say that? Planting that seed of doubt in Eve's mind. And then what? Spewing a blatant lie. After he's planted the seed of doubt, he can sell the lie. And he does that very well. How about anger? Anger that might lead to murder in your heart. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 5. Satan has been a murderer from the beginning. Jesus tells us in John 8. He's a deceiver. Again, John 8. And he's a divider. He pits brother against brother. Remember Cain and Abel? Brother against brother. But I think an even bigger scheme, one that maybe we even overlook, is the scheme of apathy. Apathy. This is a very real trouble in the church today. I don't really, I don't really worry about doctrine. I mean, doctrine divides. I, I, I don't really care about that. It's just, you know, it's for the theologians in the, in the seminaries, and, and as they get pasteurized, they, they can learn about that kind of stuff over there. I don't need that for me. Well, again, C.S. Lewis, Senior Devil Screwtape to Junior Devil Wormwood. I think this is great. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. You see, it is so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair, hardly felt as pain, of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we create in their lives and the inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it all, 
All this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. If, on the other hand, the middle years prove prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing an agreeable work build up in him a sense of being really at home on earth, which is just what we want. You will notice that the young are generally less unwilling to die than the middle-aged and the old. This is why we need to continue to stand ready to fight apathy in the church, to fight lies, to fight deceit, to fight division, to be ready to deal with these things when they come. Why? Why do we need to continue because of these these schemes? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is not against each other. It's against the devil's lies. Paul uses a word here, translated struggle or wrestle, that comes from the ancient Greek games. It's always associated with wrestling or hand-to-hand combat when it's used in a military context. There is an intense violence implied by the, worst of, by the use of this Greek word that our English words, struggle or wrestle, just really doesn't convey. I, I know that you guys know how much I enjoy reading. I, I read a lot. I have a crazy number of books, way too many. I need to get rid of some. Anybody need books? See me later. Um, I also am a physical therapist, so I treat a lot of people, a lot of military veterans as well. And one opportunity I had to treat one of our veterans had come back from Iraq, and he was involved in a very specific battle there, and it was a very, very violent battle, and it took a long time, and it took its toll on our military, and it was the Battle of Fallujah. And in this battle, they had to literally go house to house to root out the terrorists from Al-Qaeda. Well, this man was in that battle. This man had suffered greatly some physical injuries in that battle. And I had the privilege of treating him and helping him. And as we talked about some of his injuries, he would get very emotional because it would bring up that battle all over again. And it was as if he was reliving it in his mind. And I would ask him about it every once in a while. And I asked him if I could pray for him, and he said yes. And he said, you know what, Brian, if if you really want to understand what went on there, you need to read a book. It's called House to House, and it's about the Battle of Fallujah. And I said, okay. So I, I, like a good physical therapist would, I went home and ordered the book because I need to help my patient. And I read that book. And beloved, he is mentioned by name in that book. And in the battle in which he was involved, he had to deal with multiple contacts in a three-story house that he had to clear floor by floor by floor against a terrorist enemy that were amped up on methamphetamines and cocaine and heroin and any other drug that they could pump pump in their bodies so that they would not stop fighting no matter how injured they were. This is like fighting an enemy that just will not die. They just will not die. And the description of what this man went through horrified me. Beloved, that is what Paul is talking about here. This is the struggle of intense hand-to-hand combat against an enemy that we cannot kill. We cannot kill them. And yet we have got to stand ready to fight them. The fight is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Against, against, against. We have things out there, spiritual beings out there that we are fighting against that we have no idea how severe it is and how hard it is because we don't take it seriously. Beloved, Paul wants us to take it seriously. 
He wants us to realize how serious this battle is and how hard this battle will be. These rulers are angelic or demonic rulers that are in areas of authority. These powers are ruling powers and authority in the spiritual realm. This word for world forces of darkness is one word in the Greek. We had to put five words together in the English just to convey the meaning of this word. In the Greek, it occurs only here in the New Testament. And it's two Greek words smashed together. The resulting word describes a worldwide tyrant, a potentate, if you will, whose sole desire is world domination. We've seen this in Scripture. We've seen these guys. Pharaoh of Egypt. Sennacherib of Assyria. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Cyrus of Medo-Persia. Alexander of Greece. All of the Caesars of Rome. These are the types of foes that we are fighting. We are fighting against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Demonic spirits, beloved. Paul is piling up these descriptive terms to emphasize the terrifying power of their influence. He wants us to know the comprehensiveness of their plans to describe the seriousness of the situation. They will stop at nothing less than world domination. Look at North Korea. It is black. There is no evangelical presence there. Look at China. Look at the Middle East. Look at the 1040 window. Look at Western Europe. Look at what's happened there. Look at how it's beginning to creep here into the United States. We are in the battle now. Put on the full armor of God. The second way we need to be strong, the second way that we need to be strengthened is found in verse 13. Take up, therefore, take up the full armor of God. The first is put on. The second is take up. This second way of being strengthened is an intentional and purposeful task of final preparation. While the putting on is your preliminary dressing, if you will, this taking up is that last-minute preparation, making sure that every detail of the armor is correct, that everything is in its proper place. The soldier is double-checking his armor at this point immediately before entering active combat. There is an active taking up here. There is an intensity and an urgency in the Greek here that just, again, isn't conveyed in the English. We need to actively take it up every single time we go into battle. Every every single time we know we're going to face the enemy. We must take up the full armor of God once and always. A once and for all obedience. I don't know how many of you guys like war movies. Um, It's a genre that is kind of intense. Language isn't that good most of the time. Um, Obviously violent. For some reason, I really like war movies. I don't know why. I just do. Maybe it's because I've had so many family members serve in World War I, World War II, um, Vietnam, Persian Gulf War I, and on and on and on. Even the the war on terror right now. I've had so many friends and family members serve, and there was, there's been a time where I've just longed to serve, maybe even as a chaplain role, but ultimately the Lord did not push me in that direction. I, I treat military personnel in the clinic, and I thank them for their service. And I just cannot even imagine dealing with what they have to deal with. There was a movie based on a book called Black Hawk Down, about a series of events in Somalia during the Clinton administration. And in this movie, there is a soldier that is part of the Special Operations Force that goes in to rescue some of these pilots in this Black Hawk helicopter that went down in the middle of the city. And at the end of the movie, at the end of the battle, where they don't rescue the pilot, but they get back to base, they lose most of their squad, but he survives. He does the unthinkable. He stands at a table full of gear, and he gears back up. He takes off the damaged gear. He puts on fresh gear. 
He puts on fresh everything. He gets new ammunition for his rifle, for his handgun. He gets new everything. He stands, he's shoveling food in his mouth, and one of the other soldiers is with him and just is looking at him. And you can tell the question that he wants to answer or ask. And this other soldier says, don't even, don't even ask. Don't, they don't understand. People will not understand. Essentially, this other soldier is looking at him. What are you doing? And why are you doing it? And this soldier says this. And I thought this answer was brilliant. It's about the man next to you. Beloved, we fight this battle for the person next to you. We fight this battle for their sake, for their holiness, to bear their burden, to encourage them, to pray for them. And we fight this battle for the future of the church. In this movie, this man says, there are still men out there I need to go get. Beloved, there are things within the church that we need to stand firm and protect. We do it for each other. And the world doesn't understand that. We need to stand against, to resist. This is the second use of that term, that Greek word. This is the ongoing reality of the life of the believer who obeys the commands to put on and take up. We are resisting. We are standing against these enemies. These exhortations stress the need for divine empowering and at the same time remind believers that the devil can be successfully resisted. Since God has provided all the necessary resources for the battle. We're not going in blind. We're not going in half armored. We have the full armor of God designed by God, given by God, supplied by God, prepared by God for us. When are we going to need this armor? Paul tells us in the evil day. Almost every day, it seems, is an evil day. There are battles going on all over the place, frontal assault, side assault, back assaults, trying to flank you. I mean, the devil is always on the prowl. James tells us he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. Resist him. Is your armor on? Are you geared up? I hope so, because you're going to need it when that day comes. And then Paul tells us, verse 13, And having done everything, having done everything, when everything is said and done, when you've done everything possible that you can do, you've actively prepared beforehand, you've actively prepared again immediately before entering the battle, he uses it a third time. And our English text says, stand firm. Be steadfast. Be steadfast. Be immovable. That is what Paul wants you to be. That is what Paul is implying here. That is the, the, the meaning of this word here. Be steadfast. This time he is conveying the idea of no retreat, no surrender. Take your stand in victory. Because you have the power of God in Christ to be steadfast. This is where, in my mind's eye, because there's such vivid imagery in this passage, I go to J.R.R. Tolkien, and in the middle book, The Two Towers, there was a battle, the Battle of Helm's Deep. And the way that he described that battle, it was as if all was lost. But Aragorn is going to be steadfast. He is not going to leave that battle. And he convinces the king to stand with him, to be steadfast. Because he remembers what Gandalf said to him, in the fifth day and the rising of the sun, look to the east. And he remembered that. And it encouraged him to stand against the Urukai, these forces of evil, wickedness. And this other king says to Aragorn, what can man do in the face of such evil? I can't help but think that J.R.R. Tolkien is thinking of this passage. What can man do in the face of such evil? And Aragorn says, ride out and meet it. Take a stand. There will be others there who come to your aid. Beloved, we are that people. We come to each other's aid. We are 
steadfast in the strength that God provides in Christ. As we conclude our time in this, in this section, I want to remember the Reformation. We have the privilege of celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of the reclamation of the gospel. The gospel was taken by hostage by the church and hidden and not allowed to be proclaimed. And Martin Luther discovered it and proclaimed it. He proclaimed it in his 95 Theses. He proclaimed it in his writings on the letter to Galatians. He proclaimed it in his commentary on Romans. And all of his writings... Ultimately, that got him in trouble. And he had to stand before an inquisition at the Diet of Worms. That means a meeting, basically. It's, it's a, an inquisition in the city of Worms in Germany. And he was presented with all of these charges. His books were piled up on the table. And he was basically told to recant everything written in those books. And he said, may I have 24 hours to think about it? And they granted him that time. 24 hours later, he came back after doing intense prayer, fighting this battle. He stood in the middle of this room, the inquisitors all around him, his pile of books in front of him, and this is what he said. Since then, your seer majesty and your lordships seek a simple answer. I will give it in this manner, neither horned nor toothed. If, if you know, don't know what that means, Martin Luther's wit and his tongue were very acerbic and sarcastic. Um, he had an intense grasp of sarcasm that I don't think any other reformer ever had. Sometimes his, re- his writings, it's kind of hard to read occasionally. But he's saying this in all honesty. Not sarcastic, not angry, not biting. I'm going to be honest and truthful here. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, For I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is held captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. And thankfully, God spared him. And he was able to continue to read, continue to write, continue to teach, continue to prepare men for ministry who had a high view of God, a high view of Scripture, a high view of the gospel, and he was steadfast in the face of evil. Beloved, he relied on God. We need to rely on God. God's almighty power is required for a specific purpose, namely that believers both individually and together as a unity might stand against the powers of darkness and successfully resist them. One commentator says this, The three exhortations of verses 10, 11, and 13, which are similar in meaning and stress the need for divine empowering, at the same time remind us that the devil can be resisted since God has provided all the necessary resources for the battle. Do we intentionally gear up? Do we put on the armor? Do we take up the armor for this long battle that is before us? Are we ready to fight the enemy after a long battle and being utterly exhausted? Or do we just give up and give in and allow the flesh to take over in sin? Be strengthened. Be steadfast. Put on the armor of God. Take up the full armor of God because God has supplied everything that you need to fight the enemy in Christ. Next week, we're going to look at these other two resources, the armor and prayer. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord God, you are our protecting arm, our fortress, our refuge, our our shield, our buckler. Fight for us, and our foes must flee. Uphold us, and we cannot fall. Strengthen us and we stand unmoved, unmovable. Equip us and we will receive no wound. Stand by us and Satan will depart. Anoint our lips with a song of salvation and we will shout your victory. 
Give us a hatred of all evil as a vile monster that defies your law, casts off your yoke, defiles your, our nature, and spreads misery. Teach us to look to Jesus on the cross so that to know sins, to, to see sin the way you see sin and to hate it the way you hate it. There is no pardon but through your son's death, no cleansing but in his precious blood, no atonement but his to remove evil. Father, show us the shame, the agony, the bruises of the incarnate God that we may read boundless guilt in the boundless price. May we discern the deadly viper in its real malignity and tear it with holy indignation from our breast, resolutely turn from its every snare and refuse to hold polluting dalliance with it. Blessed Lord Jesus, at your cross, May we be taught the awful miseries from which we are saved. Help us to ponder what the word lost implies. Set the fires of eternal destruction. Help us to see them. Then may we cling more closely to your broken self, adhere to you with firmer faith, be devoted to you with total being, and detest sin as strongly as you And your love to me is strong. And may holiness be the atmosphere in which we live. We love you, Lord. Amen.